Chapter Eleven of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Eight by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. The Conquest of Munster, Death of Elizabeth, and Submission of O'Neill, The Articles of Mellifont. The days of Queen Elizabeth were now literally numbered. The death of Essex, the intrigues of the King of Scotland, and the successes of Tyrone preyed upon her spirits. The Irish chief was seldom out of her mind and, as she often predicted, she was not to live to receive his submission. She was accustomed to send for her godson, Harrington, who had served in Ireland, to ask him questions concerning Tyrone. The French ambassador considered Tyrone's war one of the causes that totally destroyed her peace of mind in her latter days. She received the news of the victory of Kinsale with pleasure, but even then she was not destined to receive the submission of Tyrone. The events of the year, so inauspiciously begun for the Irish arms, continued of the same disastrous character. Castlehaven was surrendered by its Spanish guard, according to Del Aguila's agreement. Baltimore, after a momentary resistance, was also given up. But O'Sullivan, who considered the Spanish capitulation nothing short of treason, threw a body of native troops, probably drawn from Tyrrell's men, into Dunboy, under Captain Richard Magogan, and Taylor, an Englishman, connected by marriage with Tyrrell. Another party of the same troops took possession of Clear Island, but were obliged to abandon it as untenable. The entire strength of the Dunboy garrison amounted to one hundred and forty-three men. Towards the end of April, the last of the Spaniards having sailed in March, Carew left Cork at the head of three thousand men to besiege Dunboy. Sir Charles Wilmot moved on the same point from Kerry, with a force of one thousand men, to join Carew. In the pass near Mangerton, Wilmot was encountered by Donald O'Sullivan and Tyrrell, at the head of the then remaining followers, but forced a passage and united with his superior on the shores of Bearhaven. On the 1st of June the English landed on Bear Island, and on the 6th opened their cannonade. They were four thousand men, with every military equipment necessary, against one hundred and forty-three. After eleven days' bombardment the place was shattered to pieces, the garrison offered to surrender, if allowed to retain their arms, but their messenger was hanged, and an instant assault ordered. Over fifty of this band of Christian Spartans had fallen in the defence. Thirty attempted to escape in boats or by swimming, but were killed to a man while in the water. The remainder retreated with Mogagan, who was severely wounded, to a cellar approached by a narrow stair, where the command was assumed by Taylor. All day the assault had been carried on till night closed upon the scene of carnage. Placing a strong guard on the approach to the crypt, Carew returned to the charge with the returning light. Cannon were first discharged into the narrow chamber which held the last defenders of Dunboy, and then a body of the assailants rushing in, dispatched the wounded Magogan with their swords, having found him, candle in hand, dragging himself towards the gunpowder. Taylor and fifty-seven others were led out to execution— of all the heroic band, not a soul escaped alive. The remaining fragments of Dunboy were blown into the air by Carew on the 22nd of June. Dursey Castle, another island fortress of O'Sullivan's, had fallen even earlier, so that no roof remained to the lord of Bearhaven. Still he held his men well together in the glens of Kerry, during the months of summer, but the ill news from Spain in September threw a gloom over those mountains deeper than was ever cast by equinoctial storm. Tyrrell was obliged to separate from him in the autumn, probably from the difficulty of providing for so many mouths, and O'Sullivan himself prepared to bid a sad farewell to the land of his inheritance. 
On the last day of December he left Glengariff, with four hundred fighting men, and six hundred women, children, and servants, to seek a refuge in the distant north. After a retreat almost unparalleled, the survivors of this exodus succeeded in reaching the friendly roof of O'Rourke, at Dromahair, not far from Sligo. Their entire march, from the extreme south to the almost extreme northwest of the island, at a distance as they travelled it of not less than two hundred miles, was one scene of warfare and suffering. They were compelled to kill their horses on reaching the Shannon in order to make boats of the hides to ferry them to the western bank. At Ogram they were attacked by a superior force under Lord Clanricard's brother, and Captain Henry Malby, but they fought with the courage of despair, routed the enemy, slaying Malby and other officers. Of the ten hundred who left the shores of Glengariff, but thirty-five souls reached the Letram chieftain's mansion. Among these were the chief himself, with Dermid, father of the historian, who at the date of this march had reached the age of seventy. The conquest of Munster, at least, was now complete. In the ensuing January, Owen MacEgan, Bishop of Ross, was slain in the midst of a guerrilla party in the mountains of Carberry, and his chaplain, being taken, was hanged with the other prisoners. The policy of extermination recommended by Carew was zealously carried out by strong detachments under Wilmot, Harvey, and Flower, Mr. Boyle and the other undertakers zealously assisting as volunteers. Mountjoy, after transacting some civil business at Dublin, proceeded in person to the north, while Dowcra, marching out of Derry, pressed O'Neill from the north and northeast. In June, Mountjoy was at Charlemont, which he placed under the custody of Captain Toby Caulfield, the founder of an illustrious title taken from that fort. He advanced on Dungannon, but discovered it from the distance, as Norris had once before done, in flames, kindled by the hand of its straitened proprietor. On Lochnia he erected a new fort called Mountjoy, so that his communications on the south now stretched from that great lake round to Omagh, while those of Dowcra at Augur, Donegal, and Lifford nearly completed the circle. Almost the only outlet from this chain of posts was into the mountains of O'Kane's country, the north-east angle of the present county of Derry. The extensive tract so enclosed and guarded had still some natural advantages for carrying on a defensive war. The primitive woods were standing in masses at no great distance from each other. The nearly parallel vales of Fawn, Moala, and the River Roe, with the intermediate leagues of moor and mountain, were favourable to the movements of native forces familiar with every ford and footpath. There was also, while this central tract was held, a possibility of communication with other unbroken tribes, such as those of Clandeboy and the Antrim Glens on the east, and Brefni O'Rourke on the west. Never did the genius of Hugh O'Neill shine out brighter than in these last defensive operations. In July, Mountjoy writes apologetically to the Council, that notwithstanding Her Majesty's great forces, O'Neill doth still live. He bitterly complains of his consummate caution, his pestilent judgment to spread and to nourish his own infection, and of the reverence entertained for his person by the native population. Early in August, Mountjoy had arranged what he hoped might prove the finishing stroke in the struggle. Dowcra from Derry, Chichester from Carrickfergus, Danvers from Armagh, and all who could be spared from Mountjoy, Charlemont, and Mount Norris, were gathered under his command, to the number of eight thousand men, for a foray into the interior of Tyrone. Innislochlin, on the borders of Down and Antrim, which contained a great quantity of valuables belonging to O'Neill, was captured. Magerlowney and Tullogue were taken next. 
At the latter place stood the ancient stone chair on which the O'Neills were inaugurated time out of mind. It was now broken into atoms by Mountjoy's orders. But the most effective warfare was made on the growing crops. The eight thousand men spread themselves over the fertile fields along the valleys of the Ban and the Row, destroying the standing grain with fire where it would burn, or with the praca, a peculiar kind of harrow, tearing it up by the roots. The horsemen trampled crops into the earth which had generously nourished them, the infantry shore them down with their sabres, and the sword, though in a very different sense from that of the Holy Scripture, was indeed converted into a sickle. The harvest month never shone upon such fields in any Christian land. In September Mountjoy reported to Cecil that between Tulug and Tomb there lay unburied a thousand dead, and that since his arrival on the Blackwater, a period of a couple of months, there were about three thousand starved in Tyrone. In O'Kane's country, the misery of his clansmen drove the chief to surrender to Dalcra, and the news of Hugh Rowe's death having reached Donegal, his brother repaired to Athlone, and made his submission to Mountjoy, early in December. O'Neill, unable to maintain himself on the river Roe, retired with six hundred foot and sixty horse, to Glencanson, near Loch Nia, the most secure of his fastnesses. His brother, Cormac McMahon, and Art O'Neill of Clandeboy, shared with him the wintry hardships of that last asylum, while Tyrone, Clandeboy, and Monaghan, were given up to horrors surpassing any that had been known or dreamt of in former wars. Morrison, secretary to Mountjoy, in his account of this campaign, observes that no spectacle was more frequent in the ditches of towns, and especially in wasted countries, than to see multitudes of these poor people dead, with their mouths all coloured green, by eating nettles, docks, and all things they could rend above ground. The new year, opening without hope, it began to be rumoured that O'Neill was disposed to surrender on honourable terms. Mountjoy and the English council long urged the aged queen to grant such terms, but without effect. Her pride as a sovereign had been too deeply wounded by the revolted earl to allow her easily to forgive or forget his offences. Her advisers urged that Spain had followed her own course towards the Netherlands in Ireland, that the war consumed three-fourths of her annual revenue, and had obliged her to keep up an Irish army of twenty thousand men for several years past. At length she yielded her reluctant consent, and Mountjoy was authorized to treat with the arch-rebel upon honourable terms. The agents employed by the Lord Deputy in this negotiation were Sir William Godolphin and Sir Garrett Moore of Mellifont, ancestor of the Marquis of Drogheda, the latter a warm personal friend, though no partisan of O'Neill's. They found him in his retreat near Loch Nia early in March, and obtained his promise to give the deputy an early meeting at Mellifont. Elizabeth's serious illness, concealed from O'Neill, though well known to Mountjoy, hastened the negotiations. On the 27th of March he had intelligence of her decease at London on the 24th, but carefully concealed it till the 5th of April following. On the 31st of March he received to Roan's submission at Moore's residence, the ancient Cistercian Abbey, and not until a week later did O'Neill learn that he had made peace with a dead sovereign. The honourable terms on which this memorable religious war was concluded were these. O'Neill abjured all foreign allegiance, especially that of the King of Spain, renounced the title of O'Neill, agreed to give up his correspondence with the Spaniards, and to recall his son Henry, who was a page at the Spanish court, and to live in peace with the sons of John the Proud. Mountjoy granted him an amnesty for himself and his allies, agreed that he should be restored to his estates as he had held them before the war, and that the Catholics should have the free exercise of their religion. 
that the restoration of his ordinary chieftain rights, which did not conflict with the royal prerogative, was also included, we have the best possible evidence. Sir Henry Dalcra, having complained to Lord Mountjoy that O'Neill quartered men on O'Kane, who had surrendered to himself, Mountjoy made answer, My lord of Tyrone is taken in with promise to be restored, as well to all his lands as to his honour and dignity, and O'Kane's country is his, and must be obedient to his commands. That the article concerning religion was understood by the Catholics to concede full freedom of worship is evident by subsequent events. In Dublin, sixteen of the principal citizens suffered fine and imprisonment for refusing to comply with the Act of Uniformity. In Kilkenny, the Catholics took possession of the Black Abbey, which had been converted into a lay fee. In Waterford they did the same by St. Patrick's Church, where a Dominican preacher was reported to have said, among other imprudent things, that Jezebel was dead, alluding to the late Queen. In Cork, Limerick, and Cashel, the cross was carried publicly in procession, the old churches restored to their ancient rites, and enthusiastic proclamation made of the public restoration of religion. These events having obliged the Lord Deputy to make a progress through the towns and cities, he was met at Waterford by a vast procession, headed by religious persons in the habits of their order, who boldly declared to him that the citizens of Waterford could not, in conscience, obey any prince that persecuted the Catholic religion. When such was the spirit of the town populations, we are not surprised to learn that, in the rural districts, almost exclusively Catholic, the people entered upon the use of many of their old churches, and repaired several abbeys, among the number, Budavant, Kilcrea, and Timoleague in Cork, Quinn Abbey in Clare, Kilconnell in Galway, Rosnariel in Mayo, and Multifarnham in West Meath. So confident were they that the days of persecution were past, that King James prefaces his proclamation of July 1605 with the statement, Whereas we have been informed that our subjects in the kingdom of Ireland, since the death of our beloved sister, have been deceived by a false rumour, to wit, that we would allow them liberty of conscience, and so forth. How cruelly they were then undeceived belongs to the history of the next reign. Here we need only remark that the articles of Limerick were not more shamefully violated by the statute 6th and 7th, William III, than the articles of Mellifont were violated by this proclamation of the third year of James I. End of chapter 11. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.